Hey, welcome back to Mike Seibert Radio. I am your host. And today, as we continue to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the 35th anniversary of the Transformers the movie, uh, we're going to talk about a very special presentation that happened uh, a couple weeks ago during TF Nation in the United Kingdom back on August 13th and 14th called Beyond Your Wildest Imagination. Uh, Transformers historian Jim Sorensen and YouTuber Chris McFeely, they uh, hosted a live multimedia presentation of the long-lost original very first draft of the script for Transformers the movie, written, of course, by Ron Friedman. Uh, we've, uh, I, I recently was a guest on Autopod Decepticast, where we t- talked about a lot of the, the outline of the script and all of, like, this thing has taken Transformers fandom by storm, you know, like, uh, you know, as soon as we met Rails and all these other cool things, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I, didn't, I, I, didn't they recently go through the, uh, the second draft that Ron had done? They, I, I believe it's the 1985 script. I don't remember right. what number it is in sequence. Uh, well, they, it, uh, when I say second draft, it, it probably isn't literally. You know, he probably the version I did had a couple of different drafts as he went through it. But, but in terms of the major life cycle of the film, this what I did at TF Nation with Chris, that was effectively the first draft. It was the first. Um, vision of the Transformers, the movie, and then that 1985 draft, that was very much the second one made uh, in response to the memo that that Hasbro and uh, you know, Marvel and guys like Flint had sent to Ron uh, requesting some specific revisions. And that's where you get to guys like Bolts and, and Cubby and the Anabots and yeah, those guys. some of the more uh, familiar things for those of us that have consumed uh, that that uh, uh, what we thought was the original Ron Friedman script of uh, Transformers the movie. But uh, today we're going to go beyond beyond your wildest imagination and my guest, as you've beyond, already seen, beyond? beyond beyond your wildest okay. imagination, we're going beyond beyond your wildest imagination. Okay. There it is. See, there. I, I, it works for me. You're picking up on what I put down. I, I love it. Uh, uh, Jim Sorensen. Sure stutter. Right. I, of which I do often. But uh, so thank, do I. thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm, I'm really excited to uh, talk about the fact that 36 years later, we're still finding new things and new ways to celebrate Transformers the movie. Uh, how, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. And uh, thanks for letting me do it a day later. I wound up getting busier yesterday. I, I run a book club here in Albuquerque and um, I, I moderate the discussion. So I really wanted to get to the end of the book. So uh, I needed this time and I wasn't sure how long it would run. I've heard sometimes these things go as long as like four hours. <laughs> He's he's checked out my show, ladies and gentlemen. That's awesome. Uh, so, uh, the, as as I mentioned before in, in the intro, you know, uh, at uh, TF Nation a few weeks ago, uh, you and Chris McFeely give this this uh, incredibly brilliant uh, multimedia presentation with you know slides and the audio. And you're selling it. It was an extravaganza. An extravaganza. It, really was. it was because we had. Uh, Obviously, when you put Chris and I on the stage, we've been friends forever. Um, we have a pretty good chemistry and a good energy, and we both reread the script. We'd read the script uh, several times, and I, I think I had read it um, on my journey from the states over to the United Kingdom. So I'm on the I'm in the airplane going through the 
uh, a printout of the script that my wife made for me. And, and I believe Chris had a similar sort of refresh of it. So it was very, um, it was very top of mind for us, all of the details. And I picked up things on that. I think it was about my third read that I hadn't picked up the first or second time because it's it's dense. Uh, there's a lot going on. And for people who don't know, uh, Ron Friedman, who did the first uh, couple of drafts of the Transformers, the movie, and he had done all the, the dialogue editing on uh, Transformers season one. So all the characters had consistent voices and, you know, they'll talk, you know, you decepted Turkey and, you know, they, they wouldn't say steel. They'd say, you know, rubidium steel alloy, you know, like those sort of things. That was Ron. But Ron also was known uh, Hasbro had brought Ron in. He, he was a well-known uh, TV writer, and they had brought him in to try and give extra credibility to their cartoon efforts. And he wound up writing uh, the first few G.I. Joe five-parters. And uh, if, if I assume there's a lot of crossover on your audience, um, those G.I. Joe um, five-parters, when they're trying to deal with the weather dominator or the mass device or the pyramid of darkness, and they're bouncing all over the planet and uh, the teams are getting split up and their objectives get fragmented and then they come together in the climax. And a lot of those elements wind up in the final version of the Transformers, the movie, but they're especially prevalent here in this, this first draft. You can kind of see Ron's mind on display open. Uh, you can see that creative process and, and draw some of those parallels up to and including the idea of having different terrains you know it, in the final version of the film it manifests itself more as a planet hopping adventure and i think that's a pretty good choice in that you know even by season two transformers had done a little bit of, of galaxy spawning certainly there's earth and cybertron but they go to other planets from time to time in episodes like uh the uh, the god gambit or the gambler um so seeing that uh in the final version of the movie um is pretty interesting but having it you know, in this version, there's also a little bit of that on Earth as they go to uh, little refugee camps and they go, they have a battle in the desert and they go to an Arctic stronghold where the last Autobot ship is. So all of that stuff is is pretty interesting to see. And I like drawing those connections in terms of seeing how a writer um, thinks and works and processes and, and, and gets their ideas down onto the page. Absolutely. And, you know, you really unlock something, Jim, in that like that that feels very much like early G.I. Joe. And it and it also feels like early season one, like, you know, like the the whole uh, power plant of the week uh, type of type of thing, how how the adventure uh, kicks off. But I think I, I think we're uh, uh, getting way, way ahead of ourselves. And I, I'm very excited to talk about all of this stuff, very obviously. Um, but before before we get too much further, because, you know, folks may have seen this uh, uh, stunning profile of Jim Sorensen and his hat at TF Cons or being a uh, prolific in the fandom. But since every uh, live stream or every podcast might be somebody's uh, first podcast, you know, obviously you've had a, a lot of experience as a Transformers historian and a fan and an archivist and what I would say like someone who has kind of made that leap from fandom to official work and then back and forth and back again. But for folks that might not have met you before, um, who is Jim Sorensen to uh, a Transformers fandom? And uh, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself before before we get even further on on the rails about the. Uh, okay, the you, panel. you don't want to go into the into the weeds. Uh, I, I like your use of the words rails. 
So yeah, I, assume that was, I assume that was intentional. So I've been a fan of Transformers since 1984. I was right in the target demographic group. I saw the that commercial for Marvel Comics Transformers, and I thought it was great. And I asked my mom to go out and buy me an Optimus Prime, and we went driving all around town, and we couldn't find one, so I got Prowl instead because I figured, well, I mean, I guess a police car is okay. It's not as good as a truck. But um, it, it was something that I very much appreciated as an eight-year-old on that level, you know, on that level of, of, of taking two action figures and smashing them together or taking cars and having them race. But uh, it, it stuck with me. And I think a lot of that comes down to the comics, especially the Simon Furman comics when, when he took over in the U.S. Um, you know, I, I thought his take was, was pretty interesting and uh, mature, you know, obviously, by the time I was uh, eight in 1984, so I was older when Simon Furman took over writing the comics. But, um, you know, it, it, they sort of aged up with me and I liked those stories. And then they came back in Transformers Generation 2, both in the comics and in the toys. My folks were very excited because Transformers had been off the shelves for a couple of years and they they came back and they they got me a bunch of uh, Transformers under the Christmas tree again, which was really pretty cool. And, uh, you know, and, and there was not so much access to the internet. I certainly didn't have it at the time. So it was all sort of word of mouth. You would hear at the comic book store that Transformers were showing up in GI Joe. And then I'd be like, Oh, let me check. And then you can't because it's polybagged. And you're like, ah, I have to buy this issue of GI Joe, you know, sight unseen because I heard there might be Transformers in it. And then there are. So you're like, yeah, yep. okay. That, that gamble has paid off. But um, you know, it was an exciting time. And I went to college. I got access to the internet. I became involved in the Transformers fandom. And one of the first things I did as a fan that had official crossover was I was really interested in fonts. And I would make fonts for different sci-fi franchises. And I made one for um, The Last Starfighter. And I, I did one for, for Predator that's actually gotten official use, too. Uh, and I made a bunch for Transformers many of which have gone on to become the official uh, or an official Transformers font that's been used uh, in ARGs and in packaging and in comics. So all of that was, um, was pretty exciting for me. But my first published work came in 2007 because I had collected a bunch of Transformers animation model sheets and I thought they were really cool and I wanted to share them with an audience and uh, I was ambitious and I, I thought I could put them up on the web but I'd rather I'd rather do it in print and and I was able to convince IDW that yeah let's do a 200 page book of black and white 25 year old designs so and you know God bless them because you know I, I it doesn't sound now to me, it doesn't sound very commercial, but it sold well enough to justify a second volume. And then I got to do it for Transformers Animated, which was really cool because unlike working with the G1, where I'm splunking through you know, Bob Budiansky's basement on Thanksgiving, <laughs> uh, 
uh, you know, this time I could just drive. I lived in L.A. at the time, so I could just drive to Burbank and walk into Cartoon Network with a portable hard drive. And they'd say, what do you want? I'll say, I want all your animation models. And they say, OK, do you want anything else? I'm like, uh, 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 yeah, give me all your scripts. OK, do you want anything else? Yeah, give me all your backgrounds. Anything else? Like, hey, give me all your storyboards, you know, get more, 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 you know. So I didn't have to worry about acquisition. I got it all done in an afternoon and that really freed up time for me and uh, my collaborator, Bill Forster to um, to expand the scope of the project and make it a lot more creative and interesting rather than just um, images on a page, which I think is a fine scope for a project, but animated um, was the kind of thing where I could go further and I had the blessings of guys like Matt Youngberg and Marty Eisenberg and Derek Wyatt to go farther. Uh, so we did happily and audiences responded to that. And then you know I've done another half dozen books since then. And it's, it's really neat and interesting, and it's sort of auto-generating. The more work you do, the easier it is to do more work. And that's not just in terms of things like credibility with publishers. You know, They know I can hit my deadline, and I'm not going to embarrass them, et cetera, et cetera. But also in terms of acquiring new assets. Um, you know, when, when I'm working on something like Animated or The Art of Prime, it's easy because I'm working on with people on a show that's currently in production. But when I'm working uh, like the presentation we did at TF Nation, that's stuff that is very, very old and it can be really hard to find. Hasbro, generally speaking, doesn't have much of this stuff in their archives. So you're going to fans, you're going to creators and you're rifling through their, their basements and their garages and their closets. And when you're lucky, you find these sort of things. And uh, I believe it was 2009. It was a couple of years after my first book had come out uh, at one of the bot cons. I went up to Flint Dilly after a panel and I introduced myself and I told him I was very interested in going through his archives because I'd love to try and find some of these old model sheets and et cetera. And he said, uh, yes, I have a bunch of that stuff. I'm a pack rat. And in principle, I'm willing to let you go through it. In practice, it's in a storage unit and it's buried and it's not something I'm going to get to anytime soon. So I kind of kept up with him and I tried to thread that needle of like reminding him who I was, but not pestering. So I think I wound up sending him a, a, an email about every year and a half. And whenever we were at a con together, I would reintroduce myself. And he always is a smart guy and he always remembered me. And he said, yes, 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 I'm, I'm in principle willing to do this. You know, logistically, we're not there yet until eventually he did go through his storage unit and pull it all out and decide that he was going to keep some and, and throw up the rest on eBay. And and that was my moment. And he was gracious enough to let me come out. And I wound up, uh, I've described it, uh, and it's, it's, um, it's just a slight um, uh, gloss on what actually happened. I've described it as me being in Flint's garage. I was actually in uh, uh, John Zerp Platten's garage because that's where Flint's, who's a good friend and collaborator of Flint's and a nice guy, um, and, and, and has his own really interesting projects that you should check out. But uh, but John was more eBay savvy than Flint and wound up, that was sort of the staging area. So so it was actually JZP's garage and I'm going through um, 
And as I said at the con, it was it was on election day. It was it was about a four day period, and one of them was election day. And I'm going through um, all the stuff, and I knew that he had this this draft script, and I got permission to to scan it and archive it. But but we also wanted to um, you know let the buyer uh, have access to the script exclusively for a for a period of time and I, I i'm friends with the buyer as well so i i worked with flint and the buyer in terms of of the timing and the manner of the release um and i i think everybody is on board with the idea of eventually releasing a full pdf but uh they were more comfortable with a summary first and frankly i think a summary is in some ways a more interesting way to meet and encounter this material for the first time um I think Chris and I have enough uh, credibility and goodwill that nobody's too worried that we're misrepresenting things. And I, I, when when it eventually comes out, hopefully people will read and, and share that conclusion. But beyond that, uh, these are dense scripts. It's a 220-page script. We're missing a few pages, and a few of them are condensed. But it's a lot of material to go through and and to make sense of. And and you, you've done or, or or you've been on podcasts recently where they've done some of that work for later drafts. So I think you have a sense as to what I'm talking about. Um, if you just throw it up online, people will read a page or two. Most people will read a page or two and turn out and then somebody will write up a summary and that summary will wind up on Twitter. And then that's how people will get introduced to it anyway. So we thought we would uh, maybe take a little bit more control over the narrative, um, really highlight what we thought was interesting about the differences and why some of the differences occurred and and literally illustrate some of the new characters and scenes. And all of that artwork, I believe, is is available as well on the various artists page and, and on Twitter, usually with, with my face and, and Chris's face <laughs> at the bottom image, which you know isn't maybe the ideal way to meet the image, but it really fuels my ego, so I can appreciate that too. Um, but the, yeah, that's that's sort of who I am, and I probably answered about three of your other questions as well. That's, that's why I was in the position to be scanning that and going through it, and why we chose to release it in that way. Um, so I guess interview over, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and that will wrap it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, follow Jim on Twitter. No, that's but no, that that's that's a that's an excellent distillation. And I think you you already touched on it a bit that you know both you and Chris are terrific at summarizing and distilling and condensing things down because having tried to read that that earlier Ron Friedman draft, it's it's intimidating. It's it's dense as uh, as you had said, and so I, I think some some of the discourse that I that I've seen in Twitter following the uh, popularity of the 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 new art pieces, the characters, and all of, all of the the cool stuff that's gone into this project. I, I saw a couple folks saying like, "Gosh, this this seems better than the movie we got," which. I yeah I I think I at at, at the time it kind of rankled me but I think in the time since I've cooled off it's just like no we're just we're appreciating
feeling the shock of the new, you know, because like it's, you know, again, it's these characters and situations are things we never knew existed. And and there's an excitement there to where it's like, oh, my gosh, there there, there was this rail trakes, uh, train snake thing there. You know, Cup was going to be like a Sherman tank, you know, like there, there are concepts there that are inherently exciting that I think folks just kind of grab onto like i don't know if you've seen like some of the fan art that's come out like folks have taken i've seen a little bit of rails fan art which i thought was really i mean i'm not surprised exactly but it's it's cool to see so quickly uh people putting their own creativity and spin on some of these ideas Mm -hmm. i i want to see uh starscream interlocked with uh with some (laughs) other decepticon oh no me <laughs> i'm interlocked with lesser mechanisms i mean or, or 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 tying up the uh the train like a pretzel i mean all that stuff is is uh good ron has a real um a, a real knack for for uh grabbing memorable uh imagery uh, from his mind and, and and putting it on the page and then and then eventually up onto the screen and you know to your point you know it's I, I've seen people saying that it's it's much worse than what we got, and 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 it's completely incoherent. And I don't think either position is uh, fair or accurate. Uh, I think what this draft is is it's different. It's reflecting, in many ways, a different sensibility than what Hasbro really wanted. And um, I'm, I've 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 reiterated this before, but I I want to say this again. It's very much a first draft. And even if Hasbro had loved every single plot point, there would inevitably be a second draft, a polished draft that would go through and tighten up certain scenes and, you know, um, you know, get the action a little bit crisper, get the dialogue a little bit crisper, like no first draft survives all the way to the end and things like uh the lack of payoff or the silver dollar that would be caught and addressed either by removing the plot or adding whatever the payoff was and 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 obviously ron had some sort of idea in mind i doubt he remembers it at this point it wouldn't shock me he's a really smart guy uh or or maybe he could reverse engineer it but um you know it, it didn't happen maybe because of deadlines or it got rushed or he just forgot but um that sort of thing would definitely get addressed. So th- to, to the extent that the uh, there are bits of the plot that are incoherent, that would surely have been addressed. And to the extent that there are some really exciting new ideas, you know, yeah, everything sounds great on the page, but, you know, would they have done Rails? Did they have the technology to make a new toy? Clearly Hasbro was willing to invest money in making brand new toys, uh, things like Galvatron, Cobbler, Hot Rod, Almost RC, Scourge, and Rekgar, and Springer, and the Sweeps. Like these these ideas came uh, most likely uh, from Ron's imagination and then eventually, uh, you know, from, from, you know, Flint's imagination, right? The, what, what these characters were like and um, what their visuals would be and, and what their personalities would be. But, but Hasbro was willing to put engineering resources behind bringing some of these ideas to life but um they also wanted to do it within a certain scope 
right? Um, you know, there there were a few of them, like Galvatron, are in a size category by themselves. But you know, Hot Rod Cup Blur, they were they were within the existing Autobot cars category. And the reason, clearly, the reason for the shift from tanker to cup was so that the Autobots could all or mostly be cars. You know, um, Rekgar and Rodimus Prime are a little bit bigger. Springer is a triple changer. But um, it's a, um, you know, likewise, Scourge and Cyclonus, they wanted to to fit into the assortment of Decepticon jets, which means they had to be a certain size. Uh, They had a certain um, imagery and and look to them. So, um, you know, it was unclear in the script exactly what the sweeps would be. Um, You know, we had talked about maybe doing them as as like you know like a, a german you know limousine sort of type car but ultimately we decided to kind of keep the the image of of what they had because it was ambiguous in the script and definitely the direction that hasbro would have to go would be you know to make them as as jet-like as possible um so yeah i i, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying i i agree with you and i i see how that could be a, a frustration in terms of, of, of people's reaction, but it, it's a pretty understandable one too. Yeah. Yeah, ex- absolutely. Now, do we know if Ron had any kind of direction from Hasbro about anything or like, is this just something he just completely sprang from his imagination over a weekend? We don't, well, it, it was several months he was working on it. Cause we have, we have dates for things like, um, initial outlines versus the, um, you know, the, when when the script gets completed. But um, we don't really know what Ron was given. That that hasn't shown up yet in paperwork uh, or documentation. He has said, you know, in his book that Hasbro had mandated that he killed Optimus Prime, and that um, feels accurate. Uh, you know, it, it's sensible towards what Hasbro's goals of the movie are, which is helping to transition to a a new leader character, a new main character for the line. And uh, I, I have to assume the idea of uh, killing off Megatron was probably also something that they had asked for, uh, that maybe even the name Galvatron had come from Hasbro, but we don't know that for sure. Um, and uh, it's possible that the name Ultra Magnus had come from Hasbro, but again, we don't know that for sure. The fact that there's concept art for uh, Ultra Magnus that's not based on the Diaclone-powered convoy toy uh, makes me think that there was, at some point in the design process, the idea that this this might be one of those new toys that Hasbro is willing to design. Um, so we we just don't know. And at this point, it's very difficult even to trust uh, the recollections of the people involved. Because, you know, there, there were, you know, three major drafts of the movie and there were memos that were going back and forth and requests that were being made. You know, one of the changes from the first draft to the second draft that was specifically requested in the memo was that they not kill the new characters. And there was a list of characters they were allowed to kill. Uh, that list had uh, proved slightly vexing or uh, confusing to us when we didn't know the context of the memo. Um, wondering, oh, we're allowed to, you know, but but it makes more sense now. It's saying, oh, well, you don't don't kill Blur and <clears throat> and and Mentlar, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna kill someone, kill Prowl and Ironhide and Ratchet and and Brawn, you know, like these these guys are the are the fair game. Mm-hmm. 
I, absolutely. So um, at, at this point, so you've been in contact with with Flint. Uh, a he's discovered uh, the the script. He's sold it to a collector. That collector gives you guys blessing to uh, uh, share a summarization of 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 that script. How does it then become the extravaganza of TF Nation? Like, when does Chris get involved? When, when do the artists get involved? How does that evolve into what folks saw on that August weekend? Well, so in 2019, TF Nation, for their big Saturday night extravaganza, worked with Marty Eisenberg to bring uh, an outline of you know, a detailed outline of what would have been Transformers animated season four to life as an extended script reading that had almost all of the original actors back and new artwork. And it was a huge success and everyone loved it. And, uh, you know, there was an upcharge for the Saturday night and that was a, a business model that they wanted to keep going forward. So they, TF Nation needed to have some kind of extravaganza. Yeah, to use my word, they needed they needed a big event uh, for their welcome back. And um, Dave Wallace, who's one of the organizers, came to me and said, I, you know, what do you have for me? And I said, well, I have something really pretty interesting, but I, I it's bigger than a, you know, Friday evening panel of the hardcore fans, but I don't know if it rises quite to the level of a Saturday evening extravaganza. And I tell him what I have, and he says, oh, yes, it does. It does, but with the right uh, level of investment. So that was all uh, David, really, uh, his vision of let's bring it to life with, um, you know, and we, we, we brainstormed a little bit, you know, oh, you know, would it make sense as a comic? Would it make sense as a script reading? But, you know, we ultimately settled on the format that we had because it's it's a movie right i mean you know if, if you wanted to tell the whole story you really did need about two hours and we weren't gonna have two hours of i mean we we theoretically could have had two hours of, of script reading but it would have it would have been expensive and and we would have not been able to get too many of the original voice actors and it it this format seemed like something that was a pretty good compromise it was within our budget it was within the amount of time we had and uh, they pulled together the art team and Chris and I and David uh, went through the script sort of page by page um, in, in, in a very um, sort of cursory way, but, but, but page by page kind of going through and um, we decided on what we thought were the real highlights in terms of something that would be a standout visual image. That's something you could do early on. We had talked about maybe doing some animatics um, and that was something that we wound up not having time for. So it was mostly still images. Um, you know, we had the original ones. We had Ed's really amazing uh, new character models. And uh, in my opinion, he really is channeling that fluoro dairy energy and, and feel. You know, it, it feels like something that could have leapt from his imagination. And that's not, I mean, that was what he was working for. And that was what we were getting reference for. Rails in particular was one that it took us a while to get right and went through a couple of drafts. And one of the things that I was able to do, I'm not an artist, but um, I went through every bit of fluoro dairy art that I had looking for snakes, both mechanical and organic. And I sent all of it to Ed, so he had a sense, and 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 that he he told me that that was something that was that was helpful to him in order to try and get that sense of what a mechanical snake 
uh, as imagined by Floridari, might look like. Um, and then Chris McFeely took some of those animation models and dropped them into familiar settings when appropriate, uh, like the Planet of Junk or, or uh, Quintessa. So uh, we were able to get a few extra designs and, and images up on the screen um, because it, it can be intimidating when you're when you're up on the screen and it's it's just you and, and your voice and, and a partner going through this stuff. Uh, it's inherently interesting and it's an audience that's primed, uh, no pun intended, to be interested in the material, but uh, it, it's helpful to have those uh, things to look at um, while we're describing them to, to, to aid in the imagination, because some of the stuff's really trippy, and then other stuff I can act out. Most of the stuff I, I think is online now, and I, I had particular fun acting out the, the Magnus hero uh, moment minutes into the movie where he's catching uh, he's catching fireballs in a giant steel bucket and, and hurling them back at it. So I, I'm up on stage acting that out in front of a live audience. And that's something that I probably wouldn't have done in a different venue. But but when you have, you know, hundreds of people that are sort of cheering and ooing and eyeing and applauding, you know, it's it's easy to to get into that rhythm and not worry that you know you're you're embarrassing yourself or or anything to the effect of that. And and it is such a great moment that you know that that's the kind of thing that would have made a, a terrific animatic if we had the time so you know this was the next best thing that i could do yeah well and, and i would say the, the the word i would use to describe what what the extravaganza was and what what you guys put together is approachable you know it, it took a a dense material summarized it condensed it, but then more importantly, broke it up in a way that's palatable for an audience to gravitate to. And I, I think that's part of the reason why we've seen so many of these images and, and these situations go so viral. You know, I think this is why Transformers Twitter is so um, a Twitter about it, because it's like, you know, we could grab those screen grabs or we can grab like, you know, like uh, for the uh, thumbnail for, for this interview, I found found a still of you acting out in the script. And I thought, I thought that was like a, a perfect distillation of, of the fun that, that, that was presented in uh in that evening. And it really was fun. I mean, it was fun being on that stage. Um, everyone who's, um, who's voiced an opinion that I've heard or read has said it was really fun being in that audience. I mean, it was, it was a real lightning in a bottle moment. Of, of Transformers fandom. And, and, you know, it's, it's great that, you know, five or 600 people were able to experience it. And, um, and it was a real honor and, and, and privilege to be part of. And I'm glad that it's finding its way out into the wider international Transformers fandom. Um, well, was, and, and uh, I mean, fun is the perfect word. It was, it was just <laughs> great. But, but I, I would also say though, it kind of, creates a little bit of FOMO for, for TF nation. You know, it's like those of us that were here in the States and we're like, we're, we're getting this in like bits and spurts of like, just what our friends are tweeting as the, as it's happening in the audience. And for me, like one of my first uh, uh, exposures to it was um, I, I don't remember if it was either um, uh, Galvatron uh, uh, sawing open Magnus and taking the, the Optimus prime uh, uh, matrix out, 
or if it was uh, Megatron's spirit leaving his body. But either way, it was like, you know, it's like, oh, man, this Ron Friedman stuff is so bonkers. And there was a part of me, and I don't know if this is just my, my Transformers content creator privilege or whatever, but I was like, I'm familiar with that stuff already. That that's that's not new. I don't understand. And then I saw Rails and I was like, "Oh, this this what?" And then I saw Tanker. Then, you know, then I you know, it, but I saw it like all disjointed and all out of order and it wasn't until uh Chris did his more comprehensive summarization which which was spectacular. I don't I don't know how much time he dedicated into threading all those tweets together, but that's that's another thing that's been essential for us that didn't have the opportunity to um, experience it. But even then for folks that did experience it, like, you know, you ever been to a concert and like, you know, you talk to your friends, it's like, oh yeah, I remember this. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh yeah. Well this happened. And you know, it's, there's something about a live experience that, that, that kind of makes your memories funny, but also um, gives you a good community experience to, uh, to talk about and experience. Well, and that's some of the joy of the fandom is that it is, in fact, a community and it is people who have this shared passion and interest getting to experience new things and old things in new ways and old things with new context. Um, you know, it's uh, watching the Transformers, the movie in a theater with other Transformers fans is different than watching it on your couch for the 17th time. And um, and conventions are a good way to do that. And I will say that TF Nation is one of the absolute best that I've ever been to. The organizers are wonderful people and very inclusive and make such a welcoming environment. There's so many hugs. There's so many drinks being bought for other people. And it's just it's just terrific. Uh, and that's not to put down other Transformers guns. There are lots of really good ones. Uh, you don't have to fly internationally to do a great TF. Uh, I mean, I know that, that um, you know, TFCon in Chicago is coming up and Ron Friedman is, is going to be there. So you can, you know, if, if you happen to, to be fortunate enough to be able to attend that one, you maybe can can get his take on, on some of this stuff. And, um, and that guy, I saw him at the TFCon in Burbank uh, earlier this year. And that is a sharp, sharp guy, good public speaker. You know, you can see how he could, uh, talk his way into getting some of these gigs. And, um, he just, um, anybody who's ever attended a Transformers convention, there's that moment where the audience, uh, is given the opportunity to ask questions and sometimes they're great. And then sometimes you get one that's like a little cringe and he's, he's got this rare gift of being able to take one of those, uh, cringe questions and then spin it into gold without ignoring it. Not, not in that like sort of politician way of, well, where do you stand on X issue? Well, let me answer this by telling you about how I feel about Y issue that I'm on the right side of history on, you know, like, like he doesn't do that. He actually does engage with the question, but while turning it into something genuinely interesting and fascinating, and he is a real master bullshitter. I love that. Stuff. <laughs> so, um, so if you are going to, to TFCon in Chicago, I mean, it's a great opportunity to, uh, you know, to have that live shared experience and, uh, you know, and, and, and engage with, with some of the creators. 
I, absolutely. One of, one of my favorite TFCon memories was uh, in uh, Toronto in 2019, and it was a back-to-back rock, uh, rock block. It was it was Ron Friedman uh, by himself telling all of his great stories, but then Bob Budiansky right after. So so to get that is like a rock power hour was uh, was a really good bit of uh, uh, spinning yarns and Transformers history. That was uh, oh, um, that was a ton and, of fun. You know, and, and and Bob was one of the guys who really helped. Uh, give me my start because uh the the first book i did was largely based on on a, a comic books bible that i had i got and it um it provided a pretty good foundation but it was going to bob's house again on on thanksgiving weekend and that was because he lived in new york and i was visiting my folks in new york for thanksgiving so while i was out there i wound up driving to to his house not on thanksgiving day but but uh on the wednesday and friday bracketing thanksgiving and uh, going to his basement and and he had company you know relatives i assume over and you know i'm the troll <laughs> in the basement you know with the scanners going through and and digitizing his archive but a lot of that wound up in uh, transformers the arc and the arc volume two so i you know i i'm very great and he well he wrote the forward to the book so um it was, it was great to be able to work with him and he's always he's always entertaining to see as well you know and he did the i i think he did the tf nation in, in 2019 as well I believe so. That that's that's my understanding. Um, so speaking of Ron Friedman, I, I wanted to come back to uh, uh, something that uh, a Facebook user posted in chat. Um, says, uh, "quote I'm I'm kind of on the outside of this, so this might have been mentioned already, but um, but has Ron been aware of this project, and has he given his blessing as well? Do we know uh, if if Ron has been exposed to any of this? Uh, well." I did reach out to Ron, as did Chris. Uh, we wanted to interview him for the uh, for the project. We were thinking maybe that would be something that we could use as a uh, like a lead into it, maybe or maybe because we did another panel. We did three panels Saturday night where we walked everybody through this with the artwork. But then on Sunday we did a lot more sedate. It needed to be because our voices were dead. Um, you know, panel where Chris and I were seated and walked through some of the process of it and some of the some of the less plotty uh, details of the script that we thought were worth highlighting. Um, and uh, th- that would have been a good time to bring out some, some of the Ron Friedman stuff. So, so Ron was, was aware that we were doing it. Um, you know, it wasn't something the, the, the timing, unfortunately never really worked out. Um, so I, 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 I don't want to say he gave us his explicit blessings. I don't think that was necessarily something we we had sought out. But but he also didn't say, "Oh, you're you're doing a first draft of the Transformers the movie." Well, over my dead, you know, like that that wasn't his attitude either. He seemed, you know, in in again in principle happy to participate. Um, but you know, he's a, he's a busy guy, and I don't begrudge him his time. Absolutely. And uh, while we're here talking about uh, uh, folks in chat, my dude, Alex, who uh, was participating in that podcast I was telling you about at the the top where we talked about the entire presentation extravaganza for like four hours. But he uh, he writes on he's watching on YouTube. Uh, the artwork really hit that toe. I feel hats off. It really felt like genuine stills. Oh, cheers. So. You know, that's that's was very much the goal. And that's that's not on me. Right. I mean, that's that's on. That's the work that that the artists. That's the work that uh, Ed and uh, you know uh, uh, James and uh, Andrew and everybody else who was working on that. You know, they they were able to do that through a you know blood, sweat, and tears. You know, yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and, and again, like, like we've already said a couple times, but I think that's, it, it's, it's the art and the summarization that, that's really making this crystallize for the fandom. I think that that's why it's um, resonating with folks so much now. Uh, so we, we had, uh, we had talked about this before we started, uh, uh, before we went live here and we talked on Twitter a bit as well. One, one of my recent favorite uh, presentations you've done was with Flint Dilly. Uh, oh, back in, yeah. Back, back yeah, in yeah, Burbank. Back in March. Yeah. In yeah. Yeah. Back, back in March of this year. And it was kind of like the, the secrets of the five faces of darkness where you, um, you know, showed some of the uh, uh, things from the original scripts and some storyboards and, and things like that. And I, I don't, I, I'm not sure if you've been aware of this or not, but like, you know, uh, Flint comes to TF cons um, often and he'll, he'll get like a Friday night spot. And I, I think it was in Chicago in 2018, if, if memory serves, but like I I've, more than a couple times, I've sat in a panel room where Flint will just turn on the DVD and he'll just talk about Five Faces, kind of very, uh, not quite Mystery Science Theater 3000-esque, but like he, he would stop it, tell stories. Incredible. Very fun. Yeah, I've been in the audience for some of those. And uh, I, I did a TF Expo in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, he did that for the first uh, episode or, or two. And I, I got to participate a little bit as well because that was after the, the panel we had done. But the, the, the TFCon panel, uh, that, that again, very much came out of, out of me going through his documentation and uh, reading the scripts and the outlines and, uh, and the memoranda around the Five Faces of Darkness to try and understand why certain choices were made. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of little things. You know, a, a Five Faces is one of those things where it's a very ambitious story that Flint has set out to tell. And the ACOM animation doesn't really live up to it. And, you know, it wound up presumably going... Uh, a little short because they had these very, very long episode recaps. But then you had a lot of lines where a line gets cut off and it kind of changes the meaning of a sentence or else just makes it nonsensical, right? You know, uh, Motormaster saying, you know, the Autobots used to have a great leader. And it's just such a strange thing for him to say. Uh, and it's because the next line that gets cut off is, what was his transform again? You know, sort of getting in, in a subtle for Motormaster way. Oh, maybe maybe trucks make good leaders. But that doesn't play because it got cut out completely. Um, but the big thing there was was Shockwave in the role that Blitzwing eventually had. And, and, and a much more natural fit. Um, and it makes little things like, you know, the Shockwave was supposed to remember because he's the oldest Decepticon. So they tried to play that up. So there's a scene where Galvatron lands and puts his hand on Blitzwing's back and Blitzwing sort of wobbles. And, you know, I guess the most charitable read uh, based on what's on the screen is, oh, maybe he's low on energy because he didn't take the Quintus on energy. But what they were trying to convey was that this is an old guy who's unsteady on his feet. But Blitzwing doesn't come across as old because he's one of the newer characters. So it doesn't, it's vestigial, right? It's, it's left over from what it would have been Shockwave. But I love the idea of that being, that role going to Shockwave. That just seems so sensible to me. It, it's such a good use of the character as we've seen him. Uh, and it's, and, and especially when when you get to how that plays out where Blitzwing is essentially exiled from the Decepticons. Now, 
imagine for you know cartoon shockwave who is fiercely loyal to Megatron. Cybertron will remain as you leave it. And to yeah, I think have... you did that 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 a little bit too seriously, right? You know, like yes. so, some public works and 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 improvement programs. You know, a little infrastructure might not have. I don't think Megatron would have been mad if he came back and Cybertron was was full of cannons and guns and energy factories. You know. It's like nothing has changed. I, I didn't actually tell you to do that. That was, that was you. <laughs> but but imagine if like the end of that dynamic, the end of that relationship is you're now shunned, and that's that that just has so much dramatic oh, weight. If, if, if that's had they yeah. been allowed to use the character, surely they, there would have been a showcase episode. And instead, not only is it Blitzwing, but then very awkwardly, that role of the exiled triple changer is shunted over to octane anyway and and clearly like even even as a kid you're kind of picking up on wait i thought it was blitzwing who got like why why is octane swiping trypticon you know what, what what's going on there so so it it, it became awkward it became even more awkward than it really needed to be. I, I I realized they wanted to showcase Octane more than Blitzwing because he was a newer character, but Blitzwing was still on toy shelves, you know. And maybe maybe they didn't want to give him uh, three showcase episodes, but yeah, it's 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 an unfortunate situation. But then so much around Five Faces of Darkness is right because if that had uh, been a toy animated project, it would have you know I, I think people appreciate five faces of darkness but but they i think they do it in in that sort of slightly bonkers way uh the word you used earlier to describe friedman's script you know they appreciate it for being a bit off the wall rather than for you know the potential vision that it had that that a slightly better um animation studio might have been able to deliver and 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 you know more uh more judicious editing in terms of of having all the lines make sense you know, it's 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 a missed opportunity. And I know it's one that Flint himself would love to to go back and revisit. It, that's that's something he said on pretty much every podcast he's ever been on, including my own. He's like, I'd really like to take another crack at Five Faces with uh, with contemporary animation, you know, new, new everything. But, you know, just uh, just take another crack at it because the, that out into the universe. Ron Absolutely. is also uh, working on on a next chapter to a Transformers, the movie as well. There's something about this era that uh, really it acts like a black hole for the imagination, right? You know, it, it's hard to, to get away from the weight of it. I mean, even even uh, back in the 80s, uh, Furman in the UK, you know, took this movie and, and made it so central to the comic book plot. Um, it's, it's really pretty fascinating to see. It's interesting. Like uh, my uh, my buddy Anthony Brucalli from uh, TFU.info re- often refers to Transformers the movie as the centerpiece of G one, because in in so many ways, whether whether it's comic books or or the or the cartoon, so much springs from that, and so much is. Um, it, it's just so so much of an influential piece that you know had the ambition of that movie not been there what would it would it have been like any other 80s property would have just been more of the same would it have been like rainbow bright the movie or you know maybe even like the he-man movie where it's just like or even gi joe the movie to a much lesser extent but but to where it's just basically like more of the same extended episodes i've i've said even the simpsons movie right where they specifically 
you know, lampoon that sort of idea with Homer pointing to the camera saying, you know, you could have watched this for free at home. You know, I mean, it's it's a hard trap to get away from, I think, especially in animation, although even live action, right? I mean, the, the first X-Files movie sort of yeah. had criticisms of that. And and things like the first Star Trek, Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, yeah. worked really hard to try and break out of that by, you know, it's um, very ambitious cinematography. And I think where Transformers, the movie, I don't want to say that it, it saved the franchise or anything. I think the franchise was very, very healthy in the 80s. And the kind of property that is well poised to weather multiple uh, iterations. And in fact, if, if anything saved Transformers, it was Beast Wars being very successful and also very different, which allowed them the creative freedom of the reboot in a way that, uh, you know, G.I. Joe hasn't had a, a dramatically successful reboot since 1982, right? Since they moved to Real American Hero from the 12-inch uh, dolls. So um, I, I, I think I, I think you can overstate the importance of Transformers, the movie, but calling it the centerpiece of the 80s is pretty reasonable. And I think one of the things that it does that is creatively extremely successful is the time jump because, you know, it blows open the possibilities of what uh, Transformers storytelling, Transformers animated storytelling was. I mean, there's a memo that Flint authored regarding season two about things he's tired of and it's, he's tired of deserts and he's tired of people in hard hats and whatnot. I mean, fair enough. There's a lot of that in season one. And it was, it was the correct, uh, the correct creative decision at the time, but season three um, on the back of the movie goes much further in terms of expanding the scope of uh, Transformers stories. It makes Cybertron a much more viable setting for their stories. It gives earth um, the, the, those possibilities that a near future offer. And, and it made it more intergalactic. And the movie helped with that, or, or interstellar, I guess. The, the yeah. movie certainly helped with that. Uh, and then Five Faces of Darkness very much takes the baton that the movie is passing and runs with it with planets like Athenia and Char and Thrall and revisiting Quintessa and revisiting junk and going to goo. I mean, it, it is a, um, it is a galaxy spanning adventure as is transformers, the movie and sets the tone for the rest of the scene, you know, for the next 25 episodes that we wind up getting. And, um, and, and even works its way backwards into the comic books, at least in the UK and, and, and eventually into the US by having uh, time travel as as an option so that that Furman can can bring these characters from the year 2006, for whatever reason, uh, back to uh, back to the, the present day of, of 1986 and let them let them have their adventures, let Galvatron muck up with uh, with the guys back on Earth and let skids be a you know, floating in the void with a parasite on its head. Right, right, exactly. Well, and I, I think the the thing that that we're also saying here is that it it turns Transformers from a a simple boys' cartoon to sell toys into a true sci-fi powerhouse. 
and makes it into a science fiction property going hard into sci-fi tropes and concepts uh, more so than just robots in disguise. It kind of it kind of outgrew robots in disguise to become what we. That's an interesting point. I mean, um, and I think the sci-fi elements are are present in earlier seasons, although they go maybe harder in season three. Certainly in the setting, they go harder in in a sci-fi setting. Most most of the episodes of, of season one and two are are in fact set on Earth. But um the the sorry, what was the other thing you said? I had a point and then I lost it. Oh uh, hard sci-fi. Basically, that, well, that, that, yeah. that Transformers is kind of a, as much a sci-fi pro- uh, uh, property as it is a uh, a vehicle to sell toys. Yeah. Oh no, it was it was outgrowing trans. It was outgrowing robots. Oh, oh in outgrowing was, robots in disguise. That's right. That's well, right. That, that was what I wanted to to address because I, I think you're starting to see that as early as season two. Right. When it's like it's not enough that they turn into a car or a dinosaur right now. Now we're going to really start combining. I guess that's an element from the end of season one. But certainly by the time you get to season four and beyond the year four of the toy line, you know, you never just have transforming robots or, or it's it's very rare. Yeah, that that's yeah. what you have. Right. You know, now they're going to have heads that pop off or, or guns that turn into robots or they're going to wear human or monster suits or they're going to, um, you know, they're gonna they're gonna not transform, but their their companions are gonna transform, or their vehicles are gonna transform. So the idea that it needs to do more than just transform is something that um, I don't think can necessarily be traced to the Transformers, the movie, but uh, certainly is something that Hasbro was cognizant of in their toy lines. You know, they didn't they didn't want to just keep revisiting um, realistic vehicles turning into robots, and also probably they didn't have the engineering capability of doing that, right? I mean, the, their first efforts of toys, um, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me, I don't know this as a fact, but it wouldn't surprise me if the reason ultimately for the time jump in the Transformers of the movie was to justify having more futuristic cars, because I don't think uh, they would have had the engineering know-how to produce brand new realistic looking cars uh, the way that the Diaclone cars or, or right. the Microman um, uh, household objects could do. So, you know, in, instead they they almost were, were locked into doing something a little bit blockier, a little bit more plasticky. And you can justify that by saying, oh, this is a Cybertronian car. Or this is a future car, right? You know, they, they don't have to look like exactly like real cars as yeah. long as they have four wheels and the right silhouette. And the and you don't have to pay for licensing. You know, well, there's that too, Economics. Right? I mean, yeah. So well, ultimately, right, it's a toy line. It's there to make money. Economics is always, always a factor. Absolutely. So um, a couple things in chat um, I, I wanted to uh, come back to as we as we get ready to uh, uh, think about wind down and, and closing out. Um, Jim, you've been very generous with your time. This is this has been uh, um, a whole lot of fun. Uh, but uh, so Alex says, uh, so this is a scoop and it's and it's fascinating that there is still material left uncovered. What does Jim hope is next or even left to discover from G1? Well, uh, Secrets of Cybertron would be certainly Flint's holy grail. And I think uh, based on his position in the fandom, there's a lot of people that would very much like to see that. And, um, you know, it's not among his papers, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So we, we do have tentative plans about how to go about looking for it. And hopefully, 
someday that we could bring that out. But in terms of, um, I mean, there's always more to find, right? Uh, there's a story I like to tell that when um, when Batman the Animated Series first came out and first had a toy line in yeah. the 90s, the first wave did not have a Joker figure. And uh, I went to Bill Forrester. I went to a buddy of mine and we're like, how is there not a Joker? We made a top 10 list of Batman the animated figures that we want to see made. And of course, on the top of the list was the Joker. And of course, of course, he was in wave two. Well, how could he not be? But we always kept up our top 10 list of, of Batman animated figures we'd like to see. And as the universe expanded into Superman, the animated series, and then Justice League, and then Justice League Unlimited, we always kept our top 10 list. And you could always come up with 10 figures that you'd want that hadn't been made yet, because there's always more. There's always more. And, event, and for the longest time, Speedy was on there. And he was part of the very, very, very last wave of JLU figures to come out and so he got bumped up and so he, he didn't get to stay there but you know when the line closed out we'd still had a top 10 list and there were characters on there like mercy graves and harvey bullock you know like like not top tier oh, figures but you could yeah. always you could always come up with 10 figures that if they made i would buy and um so there's always more right you know your holy grail is always the the thing that you want the most that you haven't bought yet because you already have 50 different holy grails that you've already managed to find and then this this script would have been one of them so i i'd love to find more of the memoranda that were sent back and forth about you know what projects should include um like that sort of stuff especially around the transformers the movie because there were so many there were so many hands involved in it so knowing you know, with dates, who was asking for what and when, that stuff is really interesting. Uh, you know, I think we have all the major drafts of the Transformers the movie. There is an outline for the Transformers the movie uh, for this draft that would have preceded it. That that would be interesting to see. I don't think it's anybody's holy grail, but there probably would be interesting bits in there. Uh, you know, Dark Glass, the unproduced script from Beast Wars, that's one that I'd love to see. And, you know, for me, I'm such a, a model sheet guy. You know, we, we're still missing model sheets from uh, for incidental characters from uh, almost all of season one and uh, for a lot of season three. Five Faces of Darkness, we've only had a handful of the model sheets for the the incidental models. So I'd, I'd love to find some of those. And, you know, they, some of these still show up from time to time they come out of japan or they come out of you know flint's basement or storage unit and um they come out of filing cabinets that were thrown away i mean you, you find these things in the darndest places sometimes hasbro digs them up and and then they have them so um you know th there's always more i'm always looking you know one of the nice things about doing shows and podcasts and books is that sometimes somebody who has this in their in their basement that they bought on ebay or, or at a convention 30 years ago, 15 years ago, says, oh, I think I might have that. And they get in touch and they email. And, and you know, the next thing you know, you're, you're doing a panel in front of 500 people. And and, and, and it's something very similar to that just happened with the uh, Transformers animated shorts. It's it's like, oh, oh, those uh, those aren't out here. Here you go. <laughs> it just and, and that just happened on Twitter, like like, you know, like the, within like the last week or so. Yeah, no, I, I remember that. Uh, that that was fun because uh, that was one of those things where when I was working on the the AllSpark Almanac, they gave me a disc of it, but you know it's, it's watermarked with my name on it and whatnot. So I, I, I I've seen all of them. That's how I was able to write about them. You know, there, there's little summaries of them, but there's no substitute for being able to actually watch that. So it's it's fantastic that somebody who had it and was in a position to share it was was able to do so. And I'm I'm so happy to see that 
sort of material come to light and not get lost. Because um, some of it does, some of it does get lost and some of it may never be found, but hopefully most of it will get found, will get shared, will make its way out into the consciousness. And then we can, we can discuss it and we can uh, marvel at its, at its um, wonders and, and uh, gasp at its flaws. Uh, you know, th these things are, um, you know, they're, 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 they're so interesting because they're not perfect, you know, because they're, um, because they have warts, you know, you, you want to see that, right. The Transformers, the movie, you know, even the version we got is a weird, is a weird project, you know, with, yes. with, with weird pacing and, and, you know, this, this strange passing of the torch because of toys that would not make it into a conventional movie structure. You know, it's not a Pixar movie, you know, it has no ambition of being a Pixar movie, uh, but that's, Part of what makes it great, you know, it's soundtrack, it's uh, it's cast, it's you know, not not just in terms of the characters, but in terms of the actors. You know, you know Orson Welles and Leonard Nimoy and Robert Stack. I mean, they're, they're, it's a star-studded cast that nobody turned out to see at the time. Right. Well, and it's not any one thing. It's it's all of it. It's all of those disparate elements that combined make Transformers the movie something yeah. very uh very special yeah, and, and iconic it's it's weird al yankovic and it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. ron friedman and and flint dilly and peter cullen and flora Derry and you know all of these elements as you say be, be nelson shin's directing you know yeah. i mean it is a very yeah, use well, of color and just yeah, yeah i mean it's, it's yeah the it's palette everything. of it yeah it, it's everything. Um, so I, I did want to uh, loop back around briefly to uh, Secret of Cybertron, because like something that I'm not sure I know or understand, especially now that we've seen this uh, this first Ron Friedman script. So what basically happened? Did like Flint Dilly go to one corner and write Secret of Cybertron and then Ron Friedman went to a different corner and wrote what this this draft was? Um, uh, well, I don't know I if mean, we know. It, it's it's not exactly clear what a hundred percent what the timing is, but what seems to have happened was Ron turned this in, and the the folks at you know the Marvel Productions, um, you know, like Flint, read it and said, "Oh, I don't know if this is at all what we're interested in." And then Flint went into his corner with his his writing partner, and they banged out Secrets of Cybertron in one you know. I mean, to hear him tell it in like one very memorable, you know, you know, caffeine fueled weekend. And <laughs> uh, I mean, I who knows, right? I mean, that's the I, I, he definitely produced something, and and you know, possibly thinking, well, maybe they're going to want to you know look in house to 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 do the next draft. But uh, but ultimately, the, uh, Ron was contractually um, allowed. You know, like like it's still his name on the movie because that's 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 the deal. That's the contract that they signed. So they they they. They came up with what they thought would would get the movie to sort of roughly where it needs to be, and then Ron did, um, you know, based on a memo that was sent to him. Now, that's the neat part is that we can we can read what he read, and what prompted him to turn uh, this the draft that we went through at TF Nation with Rails and and Tanker and whatnot into something that's much much closer to what we finally got. You know the, the the second draft, the draft that that you went through, the eighty five draft, that um, that is recognizably the Transformers the movie. It has you know all the right characters, all the right scenes, and all the right order. You know the details vary, but but Ron, you know, as a professional, produced a script that was very much the movie they wanted, and then 
you know, at that point, that script was given to Flint and Flint did the, the next, the last pass and turned it into what was ultimately the, the shooting script and, and wound up getting filmed. Um, so that, that, that seems to be more or less the order. And then I'm sure that a lot of the ideas of the secret of Cybertron wended their way into the five faces of darkness, because that was informing you know, like, like less epic. Right. And, and, and there would have been, you know, five faces of darkness had certain uh, goals and um, certain things it needed to do that the movie did not, you know, th- this is setting up the season of, uh, uh, of Transformers season three. So uh, five faces of darkness is very much, you know, setting out the board, the game board for people to play on and, and putting all the pieces in play. Whereas, uh, you know, a movie has more freedom, right. Uh, in, in terms of, of knocking all the pieces off the board. So I, I imagine that, but, but I, I feel like some of the big picture ideas, you know, wound up, you know, almost certainly wound up in five faces of darkness. And it's been so long since Flint's read it or, or seen it. I mean, I'm sure it was, it was, uh, you know, 10 years before he even thought about it again, if not longer. Right. Uh, you know, I don't think it was, you know, one of the laments of his life at the time. Right. You know, he, he wrote a, a script for a movie. They didn't wind up using it. He filed it away and, you know, and they gave him the third season to run and he, you know, he, he did his Five Faces of Darkness. I think that was probably more top of mind for him for, for quite a while. Um, and obviously still is, and, and with good reason. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 I'd be very curious to read it because um, I don't think anyone could trust their recollection of, you know, what they, what they wrote in a, in a sleepless, you know, caffeine-induced haze uh, 40 years ago. You know, right. I mean, it's... it's, it's um, you know, I certainly couldn't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I could barely remember things 20 years ago, you know, and, yeah, I, mean, you know, I, I was I'm a younger man. And, and that was, that was two weeks, two, three weeks exactly, ago. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, a, a couple other questions for you, you know, we, we talked, uh, so some of the, the things that's fascinating about that original script from Ron Friedman, or I'm sorry, that first draft that um uh that you guys presented at at tf nation is that some of the stuff that ended up in the final movie like you know like the the uh fight between optimus and megatron is more or less the same as as we see in the in the final film um so it's fascinating to see some of those so some concepts that that do carry all the way over. So my my question for you, based on some of the things we've already discussed, is there anything from the first draft that you guys presented that you would have liked to have seen carry over into the final movie? Well, one of the things that the first draft does, well that it takes care to do is um set out you know why unicron exists and why things happen you know at the time they happen the, the idea that the junkions are on unicron's moon and ultimately uh, built the unicron that those are interesting ideas i don't know if i'd say i specifically want to see them would have wanted to see them in the final film because you know the final film being ambiguous about his origin you know gives you things like primacron and the primus origin in in the comics and the uh, so so i i hesitate to say it would have been better but but i appreciate 
from a writer's perspective uh, that more dots maybe were connected in this version of the script than in what we finally got. And and it's all, it's not quite the question that you asked, but uh, but especially the second draft of the script, the one uh, that, that you went through recently, um, they had a subplot with Blaster on Earth and a a sort of resistance movement that's very much a carryover of some of the elements in this. That's not a huge element in this plot, but it is present, not Blaster, but um, but that sort of resistance movement of people left behind and what they're doing. And I think uh, I think that might have been more satisfying than Blaster sort of just vanishing into the ether. I, I don't think you would have needed necessarily a lot of time spent with it, but even a little bit of time might have helped keep the stakes. The other thing that they did well is make the stakes of the movie Earth rather than Cybertron. You know, here Cybertron gets destroyed at the end of, of what we call Act One. Um, as, as I kind of alluded, it's, it's not a neat three-act structure. You know, it might map more easily onto a five-act structure, but, but you know, it, it's clearly that's not something that Ron was too worried about. Um, but but at the end of what we called Act One, Cybertron gets destroyed, uh, and then Earth is the stakes. And I, I think making Earth the stakes is a pretty natural choice, uh, a pretty natural creative choice, and that might have worked better as well. But but I could see not wanting you know the, the, on the on on the the flip side, making the stakes Cybertron. I think there's a real sense that maybe he will destroy Cybertron. Right? He already wrecked a couple of its moons. Right. So, you know, maybe maybe cyber. You know, I think part of you in the audience is always like, well, obviously, they're not going to destroy Earth. I mean, sometimes that bites you in the butt. You're watching Macross and like, oh, shit, they did destroy Earth. OK, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> wasn't expecting that two thirds of the way through a series. But right. uh, it's not even the climax. Right. It's like, oh, right. yeah, we have a bunch more episodes after this. But <laughs> um but usually you're, you're like, okay, Earth would probably be fine. But Cybertron, realistically, yeah, I guess he could have he could have destroyed it. Um, yeah, the the uh, the establishment of stakes is is something that that's really cool that that is added to these uh, later stories. Um, I, I saw Alex posted in the chat. Uh, why does Transformers tap into the psyche that other '80s toy show did not? What's the magic formula? I'm not sure. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, but with the I, premise of the question. I, I mean, you know, if, if you're a giant Masters of the Universe guy, then then clearly that one is is working for you. Um, I do think Transformers can owe its longevity to a, a couple of factors. One of them. I already alluded to is, is Beast Wars, giving them the freedom to reboot and appeal to the next generation and, and allow themselves to. And, and the Transformers fandom being willing to do that, which I think is largely because Beast Wars was so good. I mean, Beast Wars had plenty of resistance in the 90s when it first came out from the old guard. But it, it was just so consistently well-written and well-executed that we almost had no choice but to come along. And then once once you've done it once, it's so much easier to do it the second time. But then the other thing is the basic play pattern of Transformers translates really well to a variety of media. Um, you know, the idea of, I mean, G.I. Joe is, is, is at its core toy soldiers, uh, which means if you're not leaning into the toy side of things, they're just soldiers. And then you're making more movies and you're making more movies about ninjas who have pet wolves 
and sailors with pirates. And, you know, it, it's a little bit ridiculous. Um, you know, it, it has its charm, but, you know, there, there are a million war movies out there. What makes G.I. Joe special? Whereas not so many properties really are about the, the transforming robots. The idea that an everyday object could, in fact, be an alien good guy or bad guy is a, a pretty powerful storytelling uh, tool. And you can see it used by people uh, like Michael Bay in a live action setting. And you can see it done in Beast Wars with animals. And you can see it done, you know, they, they can be sci-fi spaceships that are turning. It, it works well <clears throat> as crossovers, right? Because so many properties have an iconic vehicle. You know, you can turn the Enterprise into a robot. You could turn the Ecto-1 into a robot, right? You could turn the the uh, the X uh, the X Men's Learjet into a uh, into a robot, right? You could turn Doc Brown's time machine into a robot, and and it it just sort of works. Um, so I think I think the core premise is really really strong, you know, not just as a toy, but but also as a storytelling device. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Jim, this has been an absolute blast. It, it's It's been cool going beyond, beyond your wildest imagination and learning more about that extravaganza that you guys put on at a, a TF Nation. Um, are, uh, are you planning on going to TFCon in Chicago uh, coming up in October? Uh, I think I, I haven't ironed out all the details. I think there's a pretty good chance I'll be there. Cool. Um so yeah, before uh, before we part ways for now, uh, uh, where can folks learn more about you on the internet, and how can we keep up with you on uh, on the social medias? Uh, well, I mean, I'm I'm on Twitter at Jim Sorensen, so I know it's 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 hard S O R E N S O N. You know, you, you could you could find me on Facebook, although you know you're going to get more of my politics and and uh, you know photos photos of my eight year old if you do that. Um, and, uh, you know, you, I, th- those are probably the main, main places to find me these days. So I have a blog, but it's not really updated. A buddy of mine's been posting book reviews there. So, uh, well, and my, uh, my buddy Aaron posted in the chat a bit ago. He's, uh, he's jealous of your aesthetic. He wishes he could pull off a, a hat like yours. He's, uh, he's oh, also going to yeah. be at TFCon. <laughs> yeah. No, well, if I am at TFCon, yeah, just, just look for the guy in the hat, say hi. I'm, I'm pretty friendly and I'm usually more than happy to chat about this if I'm not on the way to a panel or the restroom or something. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. But, but, but like, like normally, normally you saw me in the hall. I'm like, yeah, great. But then every once in a while, it's like, yeah, I really want to pee. So I'm going to. Well, yeah. I mean, especially if you're hanging out at a table with somebody or something like that. Yeah. If you're getting up, you're getting up for a reason. But my, uh, uh, my friends have a habit of talking to folks either coming out of or going into restrooms. Well, coming out of is is the way to do it. So as long as you're not in the restroom, Peter David tells a story about someone slipping him a a, a manual under the stall of a of a restroom and uh, <laughs> doing what came naturally with it. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know he's got away with words. He should yeah, be yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's Peter David after all. That's uh that's awesome. Well, um, any uh any uh, uh final thoughts or reflections about you know Transformers the movie or the uh, or the extravaganza or anything about the future? Uh, a- a- anything uh left uncrossed before uh, uh before we let you go? Well, uh, just that I love doing 
uh, you know, the, the Transformers conventions. I love doing the, the Transformers books. So, you know, if this is something that you're passionate about um, and you have questions or comments, you know, I mean, reach out to me, you know, re especially at a con. If you can get yourself to TFCon or, or TF Nation or TFX, there's obviously there's tons of Transformers cons you can go to. Um, you know, if you can get yourself to a con, do it. You know, hang out with some like-minded people. If I'm there, you know, hang out with me and, uh, you know, do reach out on on social media if you if you have questions if you have comments if uh, you have an idea you know if if you have material that you want to share please please reach out if you have material you want to share so um, you know this is this is more than a career this is this is this is a a hobby and a passion and um, you know I, I hope to be doing this for 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 a long long time and, and digging out new stuff and creating new stuff and. Uh, you know, and, and hopefully the audience is still there for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, uh, Jim, thanks again for taking the time to join me today. This is an absolute blast. We will have to do it again uh, yeah, sure. uh, sometime in the future. We'll that, go that beyond, would... beyond, beyond our wildest imagination. You joke about that, but I, I did a presentation at a local uh, Transformers convention here in the Seattle area uh, called uh, Cybefest Northwest, and I uh, I, I kind of like built on talking about Transformers the movie. First, it was like the legacy of the Transformers the movie. Then it was um, the return of the legacy of the Transformers the movie, and then I think I did like another one that was like the legacy of the return of the legacy of I got. I got real deep into that. You got deep into the weeds. So next you could go beyond the return of the legacy of the return of the Transformers, the movie's legacy. There it is. There it is. I love yeah. it. Well, yeah, and, can, uh, we can keep uh, going again. until words have no words, time. Yeah. The, 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 these concepts have, have, have eluded us. They have, they have flown away birds on a wing. Well, and everything has an anniversary. You know, it's like we're we're celebrating, oh, yeah. especially if you do fives and then tens. It's like, yeah, they're going to keep rolling around with with startling regularity. I I think so. I mean, like I have so much 35th anniversary branded Transformers the movie stuff that I'm still getting, and now that we're at the one year anniversary of that, that means we're only four. I don't think you can have a one year anniversary of a thirty fifth anniversary. I, I that's not a thing. Uh, that that that's a hill. That's a hill that Magnus will die on. <laughs> there it is. Perfect, perfect way to close out, Jim. Uh, thank you so much again for uh, taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. All right, and that will wrap things up for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for hanging out with me and Jim. And if you want to listen to my podcast, Mike Seibert Radio, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever the heck else you listen to your podcast. Like, share, rate, and review the show. Let us know what you like and what you'd like to hear more of in the future. For my guest, Jim Sorensen, my name is Mike. This has been Mike Seibert Radio. And until next time, tell all our one, make good choices. Bye, guys. Mike Cyber Radio is recorded in Seattle, Washington. Our original theme song is written and performed by Lucia Fasano. Get her music on all the streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Music, including her groovy new single, Habitable Planets. Check out her Instagram at Lucia underscore Fasano. Our closing theme is A Nice Place to Visit by These Young Fools, used with permission from Michael Geisel. Check out Michael's website, bytormusic.com. 
Special thanks to Andy Letta for our logos and graphic design. He is at GoGoAndyRobo out on Twitter. Become a Mike Cybertronian and join the MSRP Friends and Fans Facebook group. And you can follow me out on social media at MikeCybertRadio on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Want to be a guest on the podcast? Send me an email, MikeCybertRadio at gmail.com. Well, hey there, folks. Thanks for sticking around after the credits. I just briefly wanted to remind you to check out episode 186 of Autopod Decepticast, where I joined Aaron, Ryan, and Caleb, along with Captain Alexis Taylor, who actually attended TF Nation and this panel as we discussed the Beyond Your Wildest Imagination extravaganza in great detail and i would imagine that there's going to be some bonus content coming to the apdc patreon from that recording session as well we talked for i think uh with breaks and stuff also about four hours so i i would imagine you're going to get a hefty bonus sized episode and some patreon content as well get that at autopoddecepticast.com now shortly after we ended the live stream uh, for the interview both jim and myself realized that in the momentum of our conversation we realized came to the realization that we actually hadn't shouted out chris mcfeely's youtube channel which of course is the home of the excellent transformers the basics you know breaking down the complex history of the transformers franchise and its characters and concepts for fans new and old his videos are terrific and if you aren't checking them out you're really missing out on the good stuff i'll have a link in the show notes if you aren't already subscribed he's also the co-host of sonic the comic the podcast um also, uh, we mentioned during the interview that Beyond Your Wildest Imagination was a multimedia extravaganza featuring several pieces of commissioned artwork for this project. So I did want to acknowledge their work as well. I have links in the show notes uh, to their respective Twitter accounts, but go check out Ed Puri, Andy Turnbull, James Marsh, and Chris Carter. And finally, to close out this post-credit scene, uh, Chris McFeely did create a video to kick off the presentation, the uh, uh, Beyond Your Wildest Imagination uh, extravaganza at TF Nation, you know, incorporating music and artwork along with narration of his own, um, and he has since posted that video on his Twitter and I thought that would be a fun thing to share with you here and we'll see you next time Decepticons, cruel invaders from the dying techno-planet of Cybertron, launch another unprovoked attack in their relentless quest to conquer the Earth.
only one force in the universe is powerful enough to stand against them and defend the human race from subjugation. The noble Autobots, sworn enemies of the evil Decepticons since the beginning of time on their alien world.